there are secrets out there, guys, performance marketing secrets, and knowing just one or two of them can light up your funnels. Let's go. This is Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm Chris Mechanic. Join me as we go deep into the secrets of the world's elite marketing minds. Performance Marketing Insiders is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the AI-driven performance agency that makes you smarter. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm so super duper excited for today's guest. Uh, Today's guest is a visionary. He's a published author. He's a CMO uh, many times over. He spent a lot of time at Procter & Gamble uh, in his earlier career, which, uh, as you know, is one of the you know, best marketing companies of all times. Then he went to the agency side. Then he did his own thing, uh, started his own company, had a successful exit there before getting back uh, to work at Microsoft, where he eventually rose to be the CMO of Microsoft. Um, and during that tenure, did some amazing work. Met Sprinkler, was Sprinkler's first client. And then Sprinkler recruited him to build the go-to-market uh, for their big turnaround, which which you did obviously very successfully. Um, and now he's at Pros, P-R-O-S.com, which is the CFO's best kept secret to uh, profitability. And just an amazing guy. I mean, you want to talk about yeah, blending the old with the new, you know, he's like a student of uh, many of the greatest copywriters of all times, and he's probably got swipe files for days. Um, so I love speaking with uh, with folks like you. Um, everybody, welcome Grad Khan to the show. Thank you. That was a super awkward intro, yowzers. <laughs> Why? I think I don't know. It feels very uncomfortable listening mm-hmm. to all that. Well, it's true. <laughs> when you said you were super duper excited, I got nervous right away. I thought, oh. There's the super and a duper there. That's a lot of that's a lot of supers and dupers. <laughs> well, I didn't realize honestly, like during the prep call, I did not realize how big of a deal you were. Oh, for um, God's sakes! <laughs> I'm serious, man. You you stop got it. A, oh my God! Serious. Oh my God! Um, stop right now. That's got some serious street cred. Andy's modest to boot. Oh, by the way, Microsoft. I was CMO for Microsoft US, the US uh, company, uh, which was uh, which was great because I was actually a B two B focused motion. So really was able to learn a lot there on the B2B selling motion, but was also at Microsoft at a really cool time as it was making the transition from package software to the cloud. So it was a really extraordinary to, I started there in 2006 and, and left, you know, a couple of years after Satya had become CEO. So it's really amazing to watch a large organization like that go through such transformative change. You ever get a chance to read Satya's book? That is um, uh, hit refresh is like one of the best books you'll ever read on business leadership. Really, hit refresh. I will yeah, check that out. It's an amazing book. If you really and if you go online, if you go into kind of the used part, there was a special edition of the book that was done just for employees. Oh, and yeah, it's super cool. They it's like it's like annotated and like highlighted, and there's like margin notes and stuff in it. No Pay way. Attention to this. Yeah. It's cool. super. It's, and if, so there's a bunch of those floating around, you know, employees, because they had, they printed, you know, 100,000 copies for the employees. And um, so they're floating around too. But if you can get your hands on the annotated employee vision of hit refresh, uh, hit refresh. That, yeah. You will, you will not be sorry. Guaranteed. Employee division. I'll see. Maybe we can find a copy of it somewhere online or, uh, yeah, I'm just searching it, but we'll we'll look we'll look around and see if we can't yeah. locate the employee edition and post. Best it thing about that book is he wrote it before the pandemic, so he wrote it re- reasonably early in his tenure, 
And his leadership and the outcomes and results of the company have continued to accelerate since then. So it's one of those, often people will write a business book about how awesome they are. And then like two days later, you know, everything goes off a cliff, right? Yeah. You know, they film on the weeds themselves. Uh, but uh, this case, the book was a precursor to a, just an amazing run forward. So everything that he's talking about in the book was, was true at the time and has become even truer since then. So that's why I think it's one of the best books written, at least in the last, uh, last couple of decades. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I can't wait to learn all types of stuff from you, Grad. And uh, you know that our audience loves the secrets. They love the shortcuts, the 80-20s. Uh, like to, secrets. That's right. to yeah. start off, like, what is one of your secrets to success? Like, how, how have you been so successful in your career? Um, it's an interesting, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure I would characterize it that way. Uh, I, I think that that's the, for me, I don't know if I would sort of think of myself as being successful in my career. I mean, I, I think I've been very lucky and, um, I've been, I've been blessed to work with like amazing people. And the, um, and I, and I have been fortunate in that I've always worked. Like I've never kind of never gone a day unemployed sort of thing. So that's been, that's been really special, I think as well. But I'd say that there are probably, there's probably a couple of decisions I made that were really important. And then an attitude that I, I think I brought to the party, but it's been reinforced over the years. And so I feel like it's an attitude that was, um, a little bit intrinsic, but then amplified through reinforcement. And so the two decisions I made, the first decision I made was when I was deciding on my first job, um, my whole life from the time I was, I don't know, maybe three years old, maybe four years old, I had wanted to work in advertising because my father was a madman on Madison Avenue. Mm, okay. And, and I thought he was the coolest thing in the whole world. In fact, I've got a picture of him right over here. He's gone now. I've got a picture of him right over here, kind of in his advertising heyday. And I recently got married and I named a drink after him called the Charlie. And uh, it might, I just thought my dad was like the greatest thing in the world. And I wanted to be just like him. And the first book I ever read was a book called Scientific Advertising by Claude Hopkins. I was like, the first book I ever read. Really? And my dad gave it to me to read. And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And I was, I was an early reader. And then, and then I, and so, I only wanted at some point, I don't know how I got this got in my head, but I only wanted to work at Ogilvy and Mather. That was my sole goal in life from the time I was probably five or six years old. And, and I pursued that goal single-mindedly, even though I kind of got stuck back in Canada and there's a lot of like obstacles to kind of doing that. And uh, as I graduated from college, I ended up with a job at Ogilvy and Mather. Like I had it. I also got a job offer from a bunch of packaged goods companies because I had sort of just you know, kind of spread my bets a bit, including Procter and Gamble. And I thought Procter and Gamble was definitely not for me. Blue suits, red ties, white shirts, you know, get a clock in at 8:30, a clock out at 5:30. Just you know, everyone goes to lunch at noon, everyone comes back to the desk at one. Like the whole thing just seemed like something on a how to succeed in business without really trying. You know, it was just it was just like it seemed anachronistic. And I thought that is definitely not the environment for me. And and the more I learned about P&G, the more I realized it was an amazing, an amazing company and an amazing place to learn. So I went to Bill Richardson, who was the managing director in Ogilvy, who had offered me the job. And I'm, I had three or four meetings with him. And I said, I'm, I'm torn. I mean, I really want to work here. It's my life's goal. 
but I've got this weird offer from PNG that I can't get out of my mind. And Bill's like, well, you got to take the PNG offer. I'm like, why? He goes, well, you only get offered at a school. That's it. This is your one chance to work at PNG. He said, I worked at PNG. You go there for a few years, you leave, I'll hire you back and you'll be much smarter. And of course, that never happened. The, the irony, of course, I've never worked at Ogilvy and Mather and never even worked with Ogilvy and Mather, which is kind of surprising. Um, but uh, but I had I did go to PNG, stayed there for 10 years, learned a ton. And if it wasn't for that, I'm not sure what would have happened to my career in my life. It formed the basis of all my marketing principles. And, and I still have very, very good friends, um, some who my wedding was in New York and I had one of my earliest PNG peers who I'd worked with in the 1980s uh, flew from Shanghai just to come to my wedding. I wow. so like we're still like and that wasn't the only one. They're still tight, right? And so that was the first that was a very important decision. A lot of people, I think a lot of young people today make the mistake of going into startups and sort of smaller firms because they want the freedom, but the problem is they don't learn. And, yeah. and you got to you, you got to when you walk out of school, you know nothing. Right. And you have to take the attitude that you've got to be putting yourself on a path to learn and you, know, you need to get your MBA in marketing. And the best way to do that is in the marketing company. Um, the second big decision I made was after then going into startups after 10 years at P&G and I spent 12 years doing startups, I got an offer from Microsoft, which again, was another company I thought I would never work at Microsoft. I was an open source person. I was like, you know, actually one of my companies, our goal on our homepage was to destroy Microsoft. I was like, I used Macs. My, my partner had a Mac tattoo on his right shoulder. I was in all, I was in EFF was like in our offices. We had kind of helped fund them. Like it was like very, I was in a whole alternative world, which Microsoft was the enemy to. And I got this offer and it was kind of intriguing. And they actually liked the open source part of my personality because they wanted to build an open source cloud product called Health Vault. And um, ended up going there and launching the company's first cloud product. So, and I stayed there for 12 years and learned again, a ton of stuff that I never would have learned before. And the, and the overall framework is that as I've done each thing in my life, I've always tried to take a learning attitude and treat each thing as an educational episode, as opposed to like, somehow I'm, you know, kind of doing something. And the, and I think Satya did this brilliantly. He talks about this in the book we were talking about at the beginning, where he says, when he walked, when, you know, he was obviously part of, part of Microsoft because he'd worked there for a number of years. But when he sort of walked into the mindset of the CEO of the company, what he looked at is he saw a company that had incredibly smart people in it. That's one of the tech, the, one of the defining moments sort of, Defining textures or defining qualities of Microsoft is that the people who work there are just wicked smart, like wicked smart, which carries with it some good and some bad. And the, the bad that had sort of started to take over was the company had started to behave like a bunch of know-it-alls, which is a characteristic of really smart people. Yeah. But, but know-it-alls with customers, know-it-alls with partners, know-it-alls with suppliers, know-it-alls with each other. And it, with it, capital. Yeah, it's just kind of a caustic environment, you know, and, and so he he did this brilliant sort of judo move in his first email to the whole company. All the first years of emails, the first year of emails from Satya, which were all transformative emails, are on the company's site today. So you can go read them on the investor site at Microsoft.com. But he he said, I want us to change our attitude instead of being a know-it-all company 
I want to be a learn-it-all company. Brilliant. Because he basically took the same coin, which is people like who are smart. People who are smart like to know a lot of things. People who are smart also like to learn a lot of things. Yeah. And then he modeled learn it all by he, t- he was he was taking classes at University of Washington and he was like doing courses, like he was reading books and he would send out the book he'd read that week to everybody. Like, and everyone's like, oh my God, like somehow such just finding time to read these books. I got to find time to read books too. And, and that really changed the company. And I think it was um, amazing to get. And the same group of people suddenly were a very different group, different group of people. And so for me, being a learn it all, I think is really, really important. And I sort of look at my career less as a career and more as a series of learning engagements. And, and I'm, I'm attracted to things that I can learn from and that I can have fun doing. And so I don't always make the most fiscally awesome decision, but I always make the best learning decision. And I think that's worked okay for me so far. Yeah. I mean, the best investment is an investment in yourself, right? Right. But I mean, it's also, it's how you stay young. It's how you enjoy life. It's what makes life interesting. You know, I jokingly say, I'd like my last words, you know, just before like whatever the beer truck hits me or whatever. I love my last words on the planet to be, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Like it just right to the last second, you know, you don't yeah. really want to stop. You know? Yeah. That's and, awesome. And people kind of take the exit ramp and stop learning. And they, you see people in your friend circle do that at every stage. I got friends from my twenties that sort of took an exit ramp. And as soon as people take those exit ramps and stop learning, they seem to suddenly get really old and just slow down and they become irrelevant. And I saw my dad do this actually. I mean, like I can say this now because he's not here. He can't hear this, but you know, my, my dad who was super innovative, super innovative person did all sorts of cool stuff, but really struggled as a computer revolution came into being. And one point in time, I was like, hey, dad, look at this cool thing and do this. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'll use a computer when I can talk to it. Right. Kind of like Scotty, you know, computer. And um, and then one day, you know, you could talk to it, but he was so far behind because he hadn't maintained context through the decades. Yeah. Even when he could talk to a computer, which is what he was waiting for, he couldn't really talk to a computer. Because he couldn't conceptualize all the things it could do for him. And so I think if you, as soon as you sort of stop investing and learning and being interested in the future, I think the future passes you by. Yeah. Now that's a great point. That's a great point. And it's so important, you know, even for someone like you who's been in the game for many, many years, you've already learned to approach with that beginner's mindset. Right. Uh, it's actually a core value of ours, learnaholic. It, we like, we recognize the importance of learning just very early on because I'm self taught. Like I didn't go to school for SEO or pay-per-click or right. you know, conversion cool rate optimization <laughs> yeah, right. in 2004, yeah. you know? Right, right. Um, I mean, they can't teach us stuff in schools. Yeah. And I mean, in in my own life, the um, like I was kind of directionless. I was like pretty directionless after college. I got a job like cold calling for a, okay. as a loan officer, basically. Uh, that's, a, um, that's a tough job. It teaches you a lot about people. But I stumbled into digital and I just fell in love immediately. And I'm thankful on a regular basis for just like the access to information that we have now. Mm. Like young people don't get it, um, myself included, kind of, because we've had the internet since I was young. But like if you look at like autobiographies of the Carnegie's, of the, you know, Edison's, of the Franklin's, like access to information was not easy back then. And it was inexpensive. It was expensive. So really only the rich people had it. 
And that's why Carnegie and many of them built so many libraries that were like, hey, let's democratize this. So it's an incredible opportunity. Like anybody with a little bit of hustle should be able to do quite well in this space. Well, if you read any of Lincoln's autobiographies, I mean, this whole thing was finding books. Like he would hunt them down and consume them. And Lincoln was self-taught. In his total life, he had cumulatively about a year of schooling, formal schooling. Um, But he was self-taught and was obviously a brilliant orator and brilliant uh, in many other ways. And, um, but he would, he would like hear about a book in a neighboring County and then go and negotiate with that person for, to borrow that book and hold on to it. It's, it's fascinating stories. And let me, uh, so in our prep call, when we were talking about what the, your secret would be, quote unquote, you talked about something else, which is related to books and related to learning. Yeah. Um, really around like studying the classics. Can yeah, we so- talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think there's, uh, you know, this, I think the way you would frame it is, you know, what's your, um, what's your sort of like sort of secret recipe or what would you say? And I think there is, I think there is one in advertising and I think it's because advertising and marketing is a relatively new discipline. You know, we're, we're probably 150 year old discipline. It's a pretty young science, generally speaking, as sciences go. And what I find fascinating is that we don't, tend to study the history of our own profession. And so I'll use an example. My brother, who's a genius, uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's an organic chemist. And uh, so he's you know a chemist, but organic chemistry is a very advanced form of chemistry. And he works in biotech at the most advanced uh, fringe edges of the industry and has done some shocking things. And his wife, his, his wife's also absolutely brilliant. And she just invented the Merck antiviral for COVID. It's like, that's quite a family. <laughs> it's very intimidating going over there for Christmas. <laughs> it's like, so what have you done this year, Grad? I was like, I made some ads. Well, we saved a million people. Uh, anyway, so, um, so anyway, so he still knows the periodic table of elements. Right, which is pretty old. Like a periodic table of elements, they started working on that back in the 1600s, and yeah. and it's not like it's not like when he started studying, he's like periodic table of elements. Oh, that was like 50 years ago. I don't need to know that. He had to know it. It's a building block that you build on top of. Um, if you look at great painters, great painters study the masters. In fact, you know, art school involves sitting in galleries and copying the masters and understanding their strokes, understanding what they did. Then you develop your own style. There's a great uh, exhibit, a Picasso retrospective, where they show his early work through his his last work. And his early work is all realism. He was a sculptor. And they're they're looking at these busts and they're like just photographics, sort of busts of himself and other people. And you're like, oh, this, this is not cubism at all. Cubism evolved from understanding I don't know why it is in advertising and marketing that people don't study what people have done before, because a lot of what we're doing, it's the science of persuasion. So there's a scientific element to it. And the very first book written on advertising was that first book I read, you know, scientific advertising by Claude Hopkins. And there is, there is some language like, you know, there is vernacular of the time that sounds dated to our ears, but it's not, it's not even it's not even Shakespeare. It's, it's still completely understandable. It's just maybe the word choices are a bit different. It's not quite as casual and stuff. Um, but when you read Claude Hopkins talk about how he discovered the way to sort of 
the way to advertise Schlatt's beer and, and the, the way he understood the product qualities of it. It's like that would be as appropriate today as it was 100 years ago when he did it. And so, so for me, I, I always tell people, read as many books about old advertising as you can, because like one of the secrets of advertising is you can't copyright an advertising idea. So just because someone said it or did it before, doesn't mean you can't say it and do it now. And because the public has a very short memory, it's quite easy just to lift and <laughs> reuse stuff. Now you have to modernize it. You have to make it relevant to your product and all that kind of stuff. But uh, boy, you get a real leg up if you can actually find something that's worked before. And there are even examples in, in history where uh, Irie ran a campaign for a number of years where they had uh, a mother and a daughter and you were asked to guess which was the mother and which was the daughter. Idea yeah. being that the mother by using Ivory looked so young you couldn't tell her apart from her daughter. And it was a great campaign. And you could always kind of tell, but you would also be like, yeah, that mom looks amazing. Yeah. Um, then they dropped it. Some brand manager thought that it was, you know, I don't know, at a date or whatever. And uh, they moved on to something else and, you know, kind of got fatigue. And so Dove picked it up. And at this point, Dove's a tiny brand. And Dove goes on to category leadership with that campaign. <laughs> and now today, people will look at that campaign and if they know anything, even that, because that campaign has gone now too. But if they remember that campaign, they tend to think of it as the Dove campaign. It was absolutely not the Dove campaign. It was the Ivory campaign that Dove stole. Like, like for the short period of time, actually, they only waited like three years before they picked it up and ran with it. And yeah. so I'm always saying, you know, there are great ideas out there and they may be in adjacent or even very different product categories. At, uh, Pros right now, we're running a, a sort of continuing character campaign, and we're basing it on the Mr. Whipple Charmin campaign from the 1960s and 70s. But it's like there's no Mr. Whipple, there's no Charmin, no one's squeezing anything. But the concept of having a character that is not your brand commenting on your brand and on a characteristic of your brand is like the essence of the Mr. Whipple campaign. And so you can take that essence and that idea, look around and see that no one's doing that right now, and then apply it to your own circumstance. In our case, we have this secret that helps CFOs drive profitable growth. And then we've created this you know, federal agency called the Profit Intelligence Agency, who's trying to discover that secret. And there's this kind of back and forth between the PIA and pros. And, and it's a super fun campaign. It's got really nice energy between sort of these two polar opposites. It allows me to continue building a prose brand that's highly technical and very sophisticated and create this sort of interesting PIA brand, which is a little bumbly and a little 70s cop show kind of quality to it. And at one point in time, I might need to jettison the PIA because I might need to change my strategy. Right? It might need to, and in Sharma's case, they squeezably soft couldn't be their strategy anymore because then all toilet paper became that way. So they had to move to a new strategy. So they jettisoned Mr. Whipple. I may jettison the PIA when profit's no longer a focus and we move on to something else, right? And so I can, but I, my, my pros brand is still the brand. It hasn't changed. And then I can bring in some other continuing character to be my foil. So, but that's just like, I mean, I could go on for hours on this particular topic, but that to me is there's so many examples and so many things that can be used and borrowed and so many ideas that have been abandoned. One of my favorite ones that I've never seen anyone reuse is the Chevrolet Ford Chrysler campaign in the 1930s. And this is a campaign run by Chrysler and Walter Chrysler uh, was one of 
at the time in the 1930s, there were literally hundreds of car companies. Uh, like any new tech, you tend to have like a lot of entrants, right? And there were two main entrants. There's Ford, who kind of invented the industry. Then there was Chevrolet, who revolutionized the industry by introducing the first closed car. I know it's kind of hard to imagine, they, but so Chevrolet's innovation was they were the first car that had like roll-up windows and a windshield and stuff like that. Yeah. And Ford was an open car. So then it became Ford versus Chevrolet, right? And then Ford reacted, came up with the Model A, and then was, those are the two cars. And then there's like all these tiny brands, very difficult to differentiate. And they all had like different positionings and stuff. Chrysler was an engineering-led company. Walter had worked, I think, at Chevrolet. And he said, hey, um, I need to somehow get in there. So he created an ad campaign that said, when you're buying your next car, and people bought cars frequently back in because they, they rusted quickly. He said, when you're buying your next car, look at all three. And he actually had a Ford and a Chevrolet and a Chrysler car in the ad. And he goes, you, when you're buying your next car, you owe it to yourself to test drive all three of the main vehicles that are out on the road today. Ford, he went on at length of how great Fords are. And then he went on at length of how great Chevrolets are. And he said, and you know, I'd kind of humbly submit that you should take a look at the Chrysler. And this is kind of the stuff we've done on the Chrysler that we think is pretty special and makes it different from those other cars who are great cars. Uh, but you might want to take a look at the Chrysler as well. Just, you know, see if you like it too, you know, and that's what made Chrysler Chrysler. And, you know, today, you know, in North American auto manufacturing, to a certain extent, those are the last three that remain standing. And the, all the other hundreds of brands, the Deucenbergs and every Packards and everybody else are all gone. And so, so that to me, so why, why has no one that? else used that? Like no one else uses that. No one has ever used that idea since then. And that could apply to computers. It could apply to, it could apply to like a million different things. And no one does that. No one mentions their competitors and compares themselves in that set. So it can yeah. Strategy. Well, sometimes they do like in SEO instances, because there's search volume for like, you know, competitor versus, A yeah, versus, versus competitor pages. B yeah. Yeah, versus pages. Yeah. But um, I have a theory as to why that's so brilliant and so smart to do the Chrysler thing. But what's your theory? Like, like conceptually, why did that work so well for them? Do you think? Well, conceptually, I think what happens is that people in general um, are overwhelmed. That's just the general state of humanity is a state of being overwhelmed. And it doesn't matter when. You can read a book from the 1930s where people are complaining about being overwhelmed and how much advertising there is and how many messages there are. I think people have been overwhelmed for a really long time. Yeah. And so when you create clarity and you create a way of uh, sort of a thinking model, people will gravitate to it really quickly because it allows them to simplify. Because the brain inherently wants to create a simpler environment for us. Mm -hmm. And so when it can come up with a stereotype, Stereotypes obviously have bad connotations as well, but when I can stereotype the pop I drink, right? And I, it's like Coke versus Pepsi and, you know, I've got a sort of a point of view uh, and I can just be a Coke person. It allows, like, it's amazing how people will line up behind Pepsi or Coke, right? And yeah. in, in, in almost oddly loyal ways, you're like, where does that come from? Well, it comes from, I don't want to have to think about it every time. I just, I want to have a thing when I order a drink, I want to know what a drink I'm ordering. I don't want to have to recycle through the entire drink orders list every time and reconsider every single drink. I want to just know it because I've got other things I want to think about and worry about. And so what Chrysler did brilliantly is they said, here's a simple way of thinking about cars. I still want you to have choices. You're still going to want to have choices, but here's the three that you should be choosing between. People love that. Yeah. No, I think that's brilliant in terms of clarity, simplicity. It also might be useful for somebody like 
suppose that Chrysler wasn't actually number three in the market. Like they suppose weren't. they were number 17 or something. Oh, they're like number hundred. Yeah. So that, so that, there that's you're, the brilliance of it. They weren't number three. Yeah, exactly. They made so, themselves number three. It was like, that was, and also there's a little bit of what you think you are is what you will be. So if you describe yourself as a leader, you're more likely to end up that way. Mm-hmm. Totally. Love it. So why do you think that more marketers and advertisers are not studying the, the greats? Like, why is everybody not obsessed with, you know, the why aren't there courses on this, was, right? Yeah. 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 And why, why isn't there an AI based ad agency where they, they, they bring in which great ads from the past would be relevant to the problem you're trying to solve today. I don't know. I've always thought that'd be kind of a fun agency to run, but I wouldn't want to run an agency. Yeah, like I you do could think, train the AI with terabytes of yeah. you know the best ads. Outcomes you could upload results. all of you know yeah. Claude Hopkins's life work kind of yeah. thing, yeah. and just feed it all in. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think there's a. I think that people have maybe an obsession with too few campaigns. You know, we ask people tell me an advertiser that you respect and they'll say, Oh, Apple. And, you know, and they, and so they'll, they'll pick like these iconic campaigns that, you know, no one else will be able to run ever. Yeah. Um, and so that may be part of it. Maybe part of it is just a lack of academic discipline. There aren't really a lot of ad courses taught in the universities. That's not, yeah. I, mean, I went to school for business and I was in marketing and I walked out of four years of marketing at, at a top flight business school in Canada. Um, of a condition there um but it was like i had zero advertising zero advertising education walking out of that school mm -hmm. and no one taught me a single course in advertising um i don't know there, the thing that's also fascinating to me is that there's so many books written in the field almost everyone who's run an agency of any size has written a book yeah um, and you know I, i've got a massive collection i buy i see them all over the place i see they're almost sometimes there's almost like handbooks um there's a book called Advertising Made Simple by Hank Seiden. Uh, it's one of my favorite ad books. And it was a it was run just for clients. So it's not really uh, published. And I came across a copy of it in a used bookstore. And uh, it's white and black. And it's just a kind of a simple book on simple terms and really getting crisp appeals that sort of can land with consumer minds. And, um, and I was at a party and I randomly mentioned this book. And person just to my right who i wasn't actually talking to whipped his head around and he said did you say hank seiden i said yeah he said i'm bill seiden i'm his i'm his son <laughs> and i'm like oh cool and he's like are you did you just talk about my dad's book i'm like yeah and then we ended up this whole discussion about that and so there's there's a lot of books out there you know one of my favorite sort of the most relatively modern is one a book called mad women by jane moss and Moss is M-A-A-S. And Jane is one of the, she died recently, but she's one of the greats, one of the greats. Um, a Big Life by Mary Wells is another great one. Um, yeah. But in, in Mad Women, uh, Jane talks a lot about what it was like to create ads, particularly in the 1970s, mm -hmm. and how she found great ideas. And then she wrote a book with Ken Roman called How to Advertise, which would be almost like a slightly more modern version of the David Ogilvy Ogilvy on advertising book. Mm. And, and it's like, I think 
think, but you can read like you can read these books reasonably quickly uh, and consume them. But I think you have to genuinely love advertising to do it. And I I've always had a sneaking suspicion that a lot of people in marketing ended up in it accidentally. Uh, or ended up in it not really wanting to be in it. Like, I think yeah. what sometimes differentiates me and maybe potentially something that's a secret for me is I have only ever wanted to do this. Yeah. I love and it. I love it. And I, you studied I in your free never, time. I will never have enough time in my life to read, consume, and see as many ads as I want to see. I, I just won't. I am because obviously there's this volume, but I can't get enough of it. And uh, when I first started Procter Gamble, I, for my first two years, I went and got the reels of every ad the company had produced, and then after work every night until late, uh, I would watch every ad the company. So I ended up seeing every ad the company had produced for TV from 1948 to sort of the mid 80s uh, over the course of a couple of years, and it was. It was an amazing education because I also had the business results behind them all. And yeah. you could sort of see that. But again, just like to just to do that was a, I don't know, multi-hundred hour effort yeah. and, or maybe multi-thousand hour effort. And, and most people don't want to do that for some reason. And yeah. there are not enough, there are not enough aggregated books that talk about what the best way to do it. I do actually think that, I mean, we were sort of maybe joking a little bit a second ago, but I really do think that AI might have the ability to scale inside this area in a way that people could actually get more educated and leverage advertising and a, a chat GPT for, for advertising. And I think that could be, it could be something there. I'm not yeah. tomorrow, but have I you seen Jasper or copy.ai? I have not seen either one of those. That's Check out Jasper AI yes. copy.ai. They're yeah. both basically trained on direct response copyrighted wow. principles. Brilliant. Well, I'm yeah. definitely going to be playing with those this afternoon. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm loving this conversation. I could go forever and a day. We're way um, off track. Well, not way off track. Way off we're track. a little bit of off track. <laughs> I want to bring it back. I want to talk about pros a little bit. I know you've okay. you've yeah. been there just about a year, so probably you um, you know, are still getting acclimated to some extent. But tell us about uh, like what's working really well for you there. Uh, well, pros pros is an interesting company. I went there for three reasons. One was the culture of the company is wonderful. It's a really fantastic culture. Actually, very similar in all the positive ways to Microsoft. It's got a lot of the, it's got very smart people. Um, people have a high level of respect for each other. Uh, it's a very engineering led culture. So very strong that way, which is very comfortable for me. I enjoy that a lot. I'm kind of, you know, on my first sort of orientation call when I just introduced myself, I I kind of geeked out, showed everyone my Lego collection, talked about, you know, Jerry Anderson. And, and then I got a lot of really positive feedback from that. And that doesn't always happen. So, so I really love that part of the culture, the, the culture and love that part of the company. The second thing is that I think the company is poised to really explode over the next few years. And I, I've long admired what Qualtrics did, where they took a relatively stagnant category, which was surveys and blew it out into customer experience and really added a lot of value to the to Qualtrics and Qualtrics shareholders benefited extensively. And I think the same thing can happen at Pros because we are, we are sitting on top of the tools to help people manage both price and cost in the kind of complex omni-channel 
um, multi-customer, multi-price, inflation-driven environment that we live in now. And most companies are trying to manage those things with spreadsheets and it's becoming impossible to do. And so Pros is the leader in um, being able to help people do price optimization and management, cost optimization and management, and configure price quote. And that's sort of end-to-end from figuring out what I'm selling to what it's going to cost to being able to produce a quote and get that to a customer. It's a pretty powerful process. And so we're, we're, we actually doubled deal growth in the last year, which is wow. like a really good sign. And then uh, the company has got some, some amazing stuff coming down the pipe. And the third reason was that um, in order to do what we do and to do it so well, uh, Pros has got a very, very substantial AI practice. And we just launched our Gen 4 technology, which is the same kind of neural net network technology that you see in ChatGPT. And it allows us to help people guide to price and costs without a ton of history and without a ton of segmentation. So, you know, it's, it's a very responsive ne- uh, network to be able to see what people are using to make pricing decisions and then uh, make pricing recommendations accordingly. And uh, we've been deploying this in sort of test cases over the last year with a bunch of our closely held customers and the results have been astounding. Uh, we started to actually win customers just because of this neural network technology, which no one in the industry has. And so it's very exciting to be, I mean, AI is very important to me. I'm, I like to be on that leading edge, um, but I also like to be in a company that is on the leading edge of AI. Um, and just for perspective, we're, we're very sort of very tight partners with Microsoft. We run on Azure. Um, we did 2.2 trillion transactions last year that's more transactions than like all of visa and mastercard and amex put together that's more than all the tweets on twitter um it's actually 2.2 trillion is a little bit more than all the gal all the uh, stars in our galaxy and a little bit more than all the galaxies in our universe so it's a big number and yeah. uh, and because of that because of the size of that training set uh we can predict and we can see things that it's very difficult to see if you don't have that. So it's a very, very interesting company sitting on a very interesting data asset and with some really spectacular tools. And I felt when I met them and was introduced to them that um, their kind of one of their core needs was just to be able to tell their story better. And they had a, a bit of a, an engineering mindset. And this is not meant critically. It's just a, an observation that a lot of engineers have a, if I build a better mousetrap, they'll come. And that, that, that would be a good example would be chat GPT, right? They didn't do any advertising. Now there's a point at which you get to where that's sufficient. And then there's a point where you need to sort of push with marketing. And I think that pros has gotten to a very good size well, with that engineering mindset of building a better mousetrap. And I feel like if I can kind of come on and I sort of be that extra booster rocket to take it to the next level and let everybody know what's going on in this company and how powerful it can be, uh, we can create a lot of shareholder value here. Yeah, no, I could totally see that. How are you guys getting deals? Like you mentioned, deal uh, deal volume double. Like how where where are your deals coming from right now? Well, we have a direct sales force. Um, we obviously have a we have an account based marketing motion in marketing, um, and we have uh, we have kind of a large SDR team, and we have a social SDR team, which is a little bit of a different animal. But um, oh, cool. I'm sort of prospecting both in social space and in sort of LinkedIn and sort of email space. But uh, you know, we're just trying to get to CFOs and helping them understand that there's a way to manage their costs and pricing better so they can drive profitable growth. 
the thing that's happening because of the way the markets are working and what's happening with capital, uh, companies won't be able to grow with M&A over the next couple of years. It can be very difficult. Uh, so what you'll see is organic growth. So growth from existing operations becomes very important. And so for CFO, it's like, how do I optimize my organic growth? How do I charge more for what I'm building? How do I pay less for what I'm bringing in as inputs? And, and how do I make sure that I do that in a way that allows me to still grow? I can't just double my prices tomorrow, right? So how do I tweak my costs and prices in a way that I can still grow as well? And that sort of is, that's a very difficult math problem that AI can solve, but you can't really do it in Excel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that sounds really fascinating. Yeah. Um, what are the big challenges that you're, that you're experiencing there at Pros? Well, what I'm talking about right now, what I just described a second ago, is is actually kind of a new category of software, right? So it's and we're we're calling it profit and revenue optimization software. Mm -hmm. And so the, this, when you're establishing a new category, like if you're establishing virtualization, or if you're establishing customer experience, or in my case, profit and revenue optimization, um, it's 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 a bit of it's a lot of education. So the marketing task, and there's a book called Think Bigger, which has been pretty influential in the Valley. Most people have read it now. Um, if you if you know think bigger context, establishing a new category is 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 tough. You've got to have big moments where people notice it, and it's an educational motion where you know people have to sort of realize that there's a better way of doing it. Our competitor is not another company doing what we do. Our competitor is manual processes in Excel. That's our competitor. And so when, when you're dealing with that as a competitor, you're dealing with sort of ingrained way of thinking and a, a way we've always done it sort of a pro approach to things. Yeah. So it's imagine, imagine your SAP and it's 1985, you're trying to tell people there's this thing called supply chain management. Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't know. I, Sue manages like the things and then she brings them in the factory and, you know, you know, Sandeep just makes sure they get made into stuff. And then, you know, Frank ships them out. I don't, I don't see the big problem here. Like they're all doing their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh no, you don't understand. Like if you could look at that as one single system, you could optimize. And yeah, it took people a while to understand that supply chain management was a discipline that needed to exist. And of course you can't even imagine starting a company or having a manufacturing company today without supply chain management in it. But those very same companies are, are running around with Excel spreadsheets and post-it notes to manage their pricing <laughs> and their cost management. And so we, we've got to try to do the same thing in that office as what you know SAP was a, would have done in supply chain management. So it's a, it's yeah. a very interesting marketing. Got to educate the market, basically. It's a very educational motion. Yeah, very educational motion. And of course, the, the, the sort of the, the flex this, in any software company, in, in any tech company, I think, there's this natural flex to the tech. Right? There's a natural flex to speeds and feeds. Uh, it's just, you know, I, I even fall into it. And I'm like, like literally do lectures on how not to do it. But you you naturally get so excited. I you know, naturally do get excited about technology. You get excited about the tech and so you start talking about, oh, neural networks and like all this kind of stuff that I was just doing 10 minutes ago, right? And, and people are like, oh, I don't even know what he's talking about anymore. And so you, so we, what we have to do is have to learn to tell a story that's about outcomes and tell a story that is about process flow that's different from what you're doing today, but better. And there is a, always, there's this sort of secondary dot, 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 which is, um, 
as you describe to someone how it would work, they kind of like their eyes glance up and they're like, that sounds like you're taking my job away. Yeah. <laughs> and especially when we have AI in there, they're like, it sounds like a robot is taking my job away. And then, and then it's like, then, then things get kind of crazy, right? Cause they're like, you know, they start you know, defending their job and defending the little macros they've built in their Excel spreadsheets. And but the problem is that person leaves uh, and the company is like in a big, big, a really tough, tough spot. Right. And so anyway, so there, and the, the fact is what we have to show people is in fact, your job is not going to go away. You're going to be running and training AI models instead of building macros in Excel. And what a much better skill set to have in the 21st century. Yeah, I can see I can see the challenge therein. Yeah. Um Grad, I wish we could talk uh for a long time. I know that our time is uh just about up, so I want to wrap. Will you come back one time? I sure, feel like anytime you want a, a follow up to this. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I, I love this. It's but for fun. the time being, for the folks listening that are also you know, nerdy kind of old school uh, direct response students of the Claude Hopkins of the Ogilvies of the, you know, of the masters of the Don Caples, um, which I personally am. If you are loving this, please drop us a like, a comment, share with a friend. Uh, grad, like I said, we'll include all the links to all the books that we mentioned, uh, as well as some of the other tools in the show notes. Um, but let everybody who's listening know if they want to learn more about you or pros, uh, where you would direct them. Um, go to my LinkedIn page, you know, Brad okay. and, um, and we maybe throw the QR code up, um, but just go to my LinkedIn page. And from there, you can find my blog. My blog has got a lot of the stuff on it. Um, I've done a podcast, I've done a couple hundred podcasts on my own. Uh, you can you know, find your way to those. You can find your way to pros and, find your way to the profit intelligence agency website. So like it's all there, but LinkedIn is the, the good jumping off point for everything. Very cool. All right. Well, grad stay on the line. I've got a couple other things for you, but for everybody awesome. else, uh, have a great day. Happy marketing, happy advertising. We'll see you next time. Happy selling everybody. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at performancemarketinginsiders.com. This podcast is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the performance agency that makes you smarter, offering AI-driven search, paid social, analytics, and conversion rate optimization for financial services, health, B2B, and SaaS brands that know. Hey guys, exclusive for listeners of this podcast, you can get a performance marketing assessment for free. And this isn't some cookie cutter automated report. It lays out detailed, specific things you can do right now to unlock limitless growth and nirvana level personal satisfaction. To claim your free assessment, just go to performancemarketinginsiders.com slash audit and you'll have your customer report within just a few days. 